The Bob Murphy Show, episode 280. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome back to the bob murphy show what i'm going to do here is sort of a deeper dive into an Austrian response to standard MMT and Keynesian claims regarding the efficacy of government slash central bank activities. All right, so specifically, I recently recorded for the Human Action Podcast a response to a recent Warren Mosler interview. And Warren, you may recall, He's one of literally the founding fathers of MMT, modern monetary theory. I also debated him at Columbia University back in the day. I think it was actually 10 years ago, give or take a few months. So he recently, Warren was recently did a podcast where he was offering the novel claim that contrary to conventional wisdom, when the Fed hikes interest rates, at least in our current context, given the other facts about the U.S., government's fiscal position, that that's actually stimulus, right? Other things equal higher interest rates mean that the treasury owes more interest payments to the private sector holders of government treasuries. And hence that boosts the deficit, which from an MMT perspective is stimulative and it pushes up inflation, price inflation, which is like the opposite of what everybody else thinks, right? Everyone else acts as if central banks hiking interest rates is a tightening action that will dampen inflation, by which they mean price inflation, but at the possible expense of causing the economy to go into a recession. And Moses are saying the exact opposite. Okay, so anyway, I went through that recently on the Human Action Podcast. I think that episode probably will drop maybe the day before this one, this Bob Murphy show episode you're listening to. And partly that's because I'm going to time it to be such. So I'm sort of the invisible hand behind that prediction. So I realized though that after I finished recording that episode, there were a couple things. So one is sort of a loose end. Mosler in the interview responded to a point or, you know, anticipated one of the objections I raised and I kind of missed that at the time. So after I was listening to him again, I said, oh shoot, I'm kind of, leaving myself open to a counterattack. And so that's one of the holes I'm going to plug in this episode of the Bob Murphy show now. But beyond that, just I was thinking through it because also it, I delved into Paul Krugman's handling of the case of Canada because they had a sharp fiscal turnaround in the mid-90s where they had been running budget deficits for years. Their standing in the international debt markets was beginning to be called into question. And then they turned on a dime and ran a series of, I think, 16 years. I'll read the quote exactly later on this episode that you're listening to right now, folks. But they ran many years of budget surpluses 
and their debt to GDP ratio just fell like a stone and they didn't have a recession. In fact, they had better growth than the G7 average, something like that. Okay. So anyway, when I was going through that example, which kind of was a case study in saying that the MMT and Keynesian narratives are not obviously correct because, for example, they really can't explain what happened with Canada. Krugman then did try to offer an explanation and it'll be worthwhile for me to go through and elaborate on his response because I lightly touched on it in the Mises human action episode, but I think it warrants deeper study. And with all this stuff, besides just, hey, we're right, the Keynesians and MMTers are wrong. Besides that, I think you're going to just learn some good old-fashioned economics and see some of the connections between these things. And so that's also why it's worthwhile doing. Okay, so to motivate things, this will be a bit redundant if you've already listened to the human action episode, but I don't want to insist that you do so. So let me go ahead and repeat. I'm going to play the clip from Mosler that I have already done so for the human action podcast, and then I'll give the response that I gave there. But then I'll do more. I will then play a little bit later in the episode from Mosler to show that he anticipated what I said. Okay, and then I'll give the further response. Okay, so here is Warren Mosler on a recent podcast, and the host asks him just to elaborate a little bit on how does government spending work from the MMT perspective? Right, and so let's take this example. The treasury is going to buy a plane and send it to Ukraine. Let's just say the plane costs a billion dollars or a series of planes cost a billion dollars from Boeing. The treasury has an account with the Federal Reserve, the Treasury General Account, TGA. When the treasury sends the money to Boeing, it instructs the Fed to credit a billion dollars to Boeing and... Well, not exactly. It, okay. Boeing will have a commercial bank. Let's say JP Morgan. I think they're the only bank left, right? <laughs> so the treasury will say, down at the treasury's account at the Fed and credit the account of JP Morgan for further credit to its client, its depositor, Boeing. And the Fed will do that. So they'll reduce the number in the treasury's account. They'll change it down. And they'll change the number in JP Morgan's account to a higher number. The debit occurs first or the credit occurs first or simultaneous? You know, they're accounted for at the same time in this case. Okay. okay. And then JP Morgan will change Boeing's account on its books. It'll change the number in Boeing's account up a billion. So JP Morgan now has an asset, the billion dollars in its account at the Fed. And it has a liability, which is the checking account of Boeing, which now has a billion dollars in it. Of That's a JP Morgan liability. And so everybody's in balance and they wait for the next instructions. Right. And the reason I asked about which happens first is the whole yeah, so it's, tax it's, and it's, borrow it's, versus borrow tax spend. Yeah. Right, right, right. So what MMT started off pointing out way back when I first started, this was three years before I introduced this to the academic community, so in the early 1990s, is that the funds to pay taxes and the funds to buy bonds come from the government. They come from the Federal Reserve, an agent of the government. They do not come from the private sector. Now, if not pay taxes? Yes, and the funds to buy bonds, treasury bonds, or treasury, I call them securities because they're bills, notes, and bonds. People right. say bonds, but it's bills, yeah. notes, and bonds. Come only from the uh, government itself through its agent, the Federal Reserve. So what we had was everyone in Congress and you know, every legislature, but everyone in Congress believing that they had to get the government, the government itself had to get money into its account 
to be able to spend. Okay, if there was no money in the account, they could not spend. Okay, and what they couldn't get in the account through taxing, they had to go out and borrow. And if they couldn't borrow, if China didn't buy our bonds, then they couldn't spend the money. Okay, well, close examination of the Fed, which is first thing Stephanie Kelton did before recognizing what's going on here, because she had the same impression after studying, uh, you know, getting her PhD and the whole thing. They all, all the academics did. They came to realize that when you look closely inside the Fed, they have to credit the accounts of the private sector, like J.P. Morgan's account. If, if Boeing needs to pay taxes or J.P. Morgan needs to pay taxes to the government, and it has no money in its government account, its account at the Fed, its reserve account. Mm-hmm. It has a bank account like you would have a bank account, but it's a client of the Federal Reserve Bank. If it doesn't have any money in there, if there are no dollars in its account, it can't pay its taxes. Right? The only way dollars can get in an account at the Federal Reserve is if the Federal Reserve credits that account. Okay, so there you have it. Now, what I pointed out in the Human Action Podcast, I also pointed this out in my book review of Stephanie Kelton's The Deficit Myth, but I'll do it again here because I think this is important. So the primary rhetorical move of the MMT camp is to say, hey guys, this isn't ideological. We don't have a dog in the fight. We're just telling you how the world works. And you Austrian or you hard money types, you Austerians, you're longing for the days of the gold standard when central bankers and government officials looked on impotently as the economy plunged into depression. And that just makes you feel good to know that nobody can do anything to help poor people. But that's fortunately not the world we live in anymore. Now, governments can spend and there's nothing constraining them except for real resource limitations. All right. So, yeah, we can't put a base on Pluto next Thursday, but we certainly can honor all of our nominal debt obligations. There's nothing stopping the U.S. Treasury from spending dollars. They can create an infinite number of them. So there's other limitations that would kick in, but not the fact that, oh, we need to raise funds before we can spend it. Or where are we going to come up with the money for single-payer health care? That if you're talking like that, and again, this is what the MMT person says, if you're talking like that, it just shows you haven't gotten it yet. You're still thinking of the government like a big corporation or a big household when no, at least when it comes to governments like the Japanese government or the United States government, they are what we call in the MMT literature, monetary sovereigns, that they issue their own fiat currency, but also they're able to borrow in debt that is denominated in that same currency, that they you know, enjoy wide acceptance of their debt instruments. And that's really what makes the monetary sovereigns. Okay, little tangent. This is Bob now talking. I mean, it's been me the whole time, but you get what I'm saying. That part is critical. Right, because otherwise, if the MMT people didn't add that little caveat, well, then everybody's a monetary sovereign. I could go around issuing Murphy notes, but that really doesn't mean I get to do things the way the MMT people say the U.S. government can do things. Okay, so that's kind of, you need to have a market for your currency and debt. And the thing with the debt is because there's a lot of smaller countries whose governments do issue their own national fiat currency, but they're not considered monetary sovereigns in the MMT camp because if they want to borrow a lot of money, like from international investors, then it's not in their own currency. It's like they owe some foreign bank a billion US dollars that's falling due next Thursday. And uh uh-oh, they're having trouble at home economically. 
they may not be able to make that debt payment. And then they go with the IMF hat in hand. And what do we do? Good sir. May I have another? Right. And so they can't just print their way out of that because they just print more of their own currency. It will depreciate against the U.S. dollar. So even if they tried to print up the equivalent of a billion dollars, U.S. dollars worth of their currency in the act of doing that, their currency would fall further than it wouldn't be worth a billion dollars. Right. And so they get caught into spirals like that. Whereas that doesn't happen with the U.S. government because the treasury is able to borrow boatloads of money denominated in U.S. dollars. So there's no doubt that the U.S. government can honor that debt. They just print up dollars and, hey, it says right here, we owe you 10 billion U.S. dollars and here you go. The Fed can go ahead and just credit your account. Okay? So in that context then, one of the ways they motivate the discussion or the point is to say, hey, if you actually just look at the mechanics of how governments pay for, or sovereign governments, monetary sovereigns, like the U.S. government, pays for things, then the MMT position just jumps right out at you, right? And we got to get out of this mentality of thinking that, oh, before the government can spend, it needs to raise the funds either through taxation or borrowing. And they say, no, that's not true. Because look, if the government is going to, the U.S. government's going to go buy some fighter jets, what happens? And let's say it's going to send a billion dollars to Boeing. What does it do? Well, the Treasury instructs the Federal Reserve to credit Boeing with a billion dollars. Now, technically, Boeing doesn't have an account directly with the Fed. Boeing is a customer, let's say, of J.P. Morgan. And J.P. Morgan has a direct account with the Fed. And so, technically, what happens is the Treasury wants to send a billion dollars to Boeing. There's a payment on contracts to deliver fighter jets or whatever. And so... The Treasury orders the Fed, hey, mark up J.P. Morgan's account with you guys by a billion dollars. And the Fed goes ahead and does that. It just opens up. Yep, right now, J.P. Morgan on deposit with us has $2.8 billion, and we're going to change it now to $3.8 billion. And then J.P. Morgan, for its part, increases Boeing's balance with J.P. Morgan, right? So J.P. Morgan, it's a wash. On their books, their assets include reserves on deposit with the Fed, and that went up by a billion, and their liabilities include J.P. Morgan's checking account balance. And so both of those went up by a billion. So J.P. Morgan's net equity hasn't changed. Its assets and liabilities both went up by a billion. The Fed, technically what it did was, well, well this is, and this is the thing. So I don't have her book right in front of me. I don't remember off the top of my head if Stephanie Kelton includes this part, but a critical part in the real world of what happens is you might say, okay, but where did the billion come from? And the MMT people would lead you to believe it doesn't come from anywhere. It's not like there's a pile of dollars sitting somewhere that the Fed is drawing down in order to make that payment. That's like the critical MMT insight and insight in quotation marks. And that's why Mosler uses analogies like a referee in an NFL game, right? He says, if a team scores a touchdown and the referee looks at the scorekeeper and says, yep, raises his hands, touchdown, and then the scorekeeper goes ahead and adds six to that team's score, that six points didn't come from somewhere. That's just the nature of the authority of the referees to agree that, yep, that was a touchdown. And that's worth six points. Okay? And so, Moser's saying, by the same token, when the Fed goes ahead and credits J.P. Morgan's account for this transaction, that billion dollars didn't come from somewhere. 
the Fed's allowed just to change numbers in a spreadsheet. Okay, so what's funny about all that is, no, that's wrong. Or at least the way you make it true, there's nothing special about the government's position. It would be just as true for me. Okay, so specifically, what happens in the real world, not in Rothbardian land, not, oh, if they did things the way they should, where there's 100% reserve. I'm not talking about, I'm saying in the real world right now, what happens is, yeah, if the treasury wants to give a billion dollars to Boeing, then, by the way, I don't know that they would do it in one transaction. It's probably split up, but let's just keep working with this one. The treasury could instruct the Fed to go ahead and credit JP Morgan's account by a billion, like we said. But in order for the Fed to do that, they're going to deduct a billion dollars from the treasury's account with the Fed, right? I think it's called a TGA, Treasury General Account, all right? So when you say, where did the billion come from? It came from the treasury's account. And in this respect, there's nothing special about the U.S. Treasury. It's just like if I, Bob Murphy, go to the grocery store and I have $100 of groceries and they ring it up and they say, okay, you owe us $100. And I pull up my Bank of America debit card and I put it in and it reads a chip. And then I instruct Bank of America to add $100, you know, in terms of whatever my grocery store's balances with Bank of America, or if the grocery store banks with someone else, then, you know, Bank of America transmits the information over to the other bank and so forth. And it's, it kind of works like the way the Fed first credits JP Morgan, who in turn credits Boeing. So likewise, my bank, let's say the other people bank at Wells Fargo, at my grocery store. So I instruct Bank of America to add $100 to Wells Fargo's account with Bank of America. And they do that. And then simultaneously, Wells Fargo increases Kroger, that's the grocery store, checking account balance with Wells Fargo by $100. So Wells Fargo breaks even. They get an extra $100 claim on Bank of America. And they probably settled those things at some point. And where'd the $100 come from? Well, of course, my checking account with Bank of America goes down by 100 And so did I just prove that there's no constraint on Bob Murphy's spending? No, because if I instruct Bank of America to add numbers to somebody else's account and I don't have enough in mind, Bank of America is going to say no. Actually, they don't always say no. As long as if there is an overdraft, but it's not too severe, they'll actually honor it, right? So if I only have $80 in my checking account and I go to pay 100 at the grocery store, it, well, they actually probably don't honor that one. But if I had done an online payment, usually they push those through, okay? I've just noticed that pattern. Okay, so there are payments where sometimes they will, and I can instruct Bank of America to add $100 to somebody else's account, and they'll go ahead and do that, even if I only have 80 in mind, and then it shows my account having negative 20. And then, the, you know, maybe it'll be negative 55 because they'll charge me a $35 overdraft fee. And then, of course, I try to quickly correct that. So that's very similar to what happens with the Fed and the Treasury, with one important distinction. The Treasury actually doesn't have as much freedom as I do, because since 1981, it has been illegal for the treasury to overdraft its account with the Fed. Okay, before then, there was a mechanism in place where it could do that. That it was, rare, it was actually rarely exercised though, but it technically could do it. It just chose not to. Whereas since 1981, whatever that other mechanism, the authority for that, the Congress let it expire. Okay? So when Stephanie Kelton or Warren Mosler are describing 
how the Treasury instructs the Fed. They're making it sound like there's something special about the Fed's or Yeah, well, the Treasury's capacity, their abilities, that no, it's actually, that's true of every single person in the economy who has a bank account, and actually the Treasury has less latitude because the Treasury is not allowed right now legally to overdraft its account, whereas most people, and it's not too big, they do have a good little grace margin where they can overdraft their account, okay? So that's where things stand with that. But now Warren did anticipate that response. And so let me go ahead. So this is new. I didn't cover this in the human action episode. And by the way, I wasn't being duplicitous. I had originally been listening to the Warren Moser interview in my car. And then when I realized like, oh, wow, this is good fodder for it. I took out my phone and I was like jotting down timestamps. And I just, I missed this part originally. And it was only later when I had already recorded the human action episode. And then I was given the timestamps for the excerpts to our audio guy that then I heard this part. I was like, oh, shoot. Mosler actually anticipated that. So anyway, that's what happened. So here I am now dealing with that. Technically, when you look at it very closely, that is adding money first, adding dollars first to the economy before the economy can pay taxes or buy bonds. That was the initial MMT understanding that everyone had this backwards. Congress had it backwards. It's the taxpayer who needs the government's money to be able to pay his tax. It comes from the government. It doesn't come from himself. He can't generate it. If he does, it's called counterfeit, and there's rules against that, right? And so then that's in my, it's a free online book, Seven Deadly Innocent Trods of Economic Policy. It's really a pamphlet. It's about 65 pages, and so people can get that online at my website, MoslerEconomics.com. Now they'll say, oh, but the Treasury is not allowed to run an overdraft at the Fed. Well, that's a congressional restriction. Operationally, the Fed doesn't care if the Treasury has a balance or not. It can credit the account of J.P. Morgan. But Congress come in and said, no, you can't do that. So the Fed has set up a walk around. All right. But what they do is they have a system of primary dealers. There used to be 42 when I was there. I don't know how many there are now, 20 or something. But they have a system of primary dealers where the primary dealers are required to buy government securities when the Fed sells them to maintain their status as primary dealers, which they have to maintain. Otherwise, the large institutional accounts won't deal with it. Your large pension funds and other insurance companies' accounts will only deal with primary dealers. So the, the Fed kind of has that on the primary dealers. They have a little leverage on it. So it says you have to buy these treasury securities. You're buying them at an auction. They'll go to the person offering us the lowest yield. You have to maintain your market share. And we will lend you the money to do it. The Fed will lend the dealers if they need it. And usually they do. It's called repurchase agreements. We will lend you the funds to do this. Okay? And so they say, all right, we're selling you know, 20 billion treasuries today. Or we're buying, excuse me, you know, we're selling 20 billion treasuries. Primary dealers will come in with an offer. And the Fed will sell it to them. And it will loan them the money to do it. And they'll do it at a price that makes them happy. It's kind of a loss leader for these dealers. Or the Fed will sell the treasuries or the treasury will issue new security treasuries? The, the Fed cannot, is not permitted to buy treasuries from the treasury. They have to have bought them in the private sector. They'll right. go into the private sector and they'll say, look, we're buyers of 10-year notes, two-year notes. And then the dealers have to offer to them. They have to maintain their market share. They have to be competitive. If they've been, if their prices haven't been good and other dealers have been getting them, the dealers left out have to give the Fed better prices or they're going to lose their status. So it's a very competitive market. They don't make any money on it, but they do it 
as an entree into the market for the largest institutional clients. So it's a very clever thing for the Fed to do this. They get very good prices. It's not a boondoggle for the primary dealers. Okay, so there you have it. Now, incidentally, let me just mention, in case you're a little bit puzzled, I think Mosler actually got a little bit mixed up there, right? It, to me, it didn't really sound like he was explaining how was it that the Treasury ends up being able to float more bonds, okay? In terms of just the, the specific actually. So in general, what he's saying is true. In general, it is true that one of the functions of the central bank is to facilitate the issuance of government debt. Now, yes, it's a shell game. They don't directly do it. And I don't know if that's just to fool the public or because they want to fool themselves even and say, oh, we're not just directly monetizing deficits. So that, that would be reckless. What we're doing is just independent monetary policy to promote stable prices and employment growth and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, who knows? But clearly, throughout history, the function or one of the main functions of the central bank, like why is it that the government gives all these privileges to a bunch of private bankers and anoints them as the central bank and they get all sorts of prerogatives that the other banks don't get. Well, it's because the central bank makes it easier for the government to finance its deficits. Okay. So that's going back to the Bank of England. That's why they do it. The government is not just creating a central bank out of the goodness of their heart. It's a symbiotic relationship that they're given special privileges to the bank that gets anointed as the central bank. But then in exchange for that, the central bank helps the government borrow money on better terms than would be available without the existence of the central bank. Okay, so this is not a new insight that Warren Mosler and the MMT camp have provided us. This is a very cynical thing that hard money types who don't like central banks have said from the beginning. I'm not going to dig it up right now, partly because I forgot to. I actually meant to, but I haven't. And I don't want to take the time to do it. I want to bang this episode out. But if you go and read, I am certain if you go and read like Murray Rothbard's handling and his various works, the mystery of banking, the case against the Fed, and then, you know, some of his more historical stuff, if he talks about like the foundation of the Bank of England or the Second Bank of the United States or whatever, I am certain that Rothbard will mention cynically that, oh yeah, the reason the government does this is to help it raise funds more cheaply, that the government can flow bonds at a lower interest rate given the existence of the central bank that it just created, than would otherwise be the case, right? I'm sure he says that. Maybe not in those exact words, but words to that effect, okay? So this is not some like, ah, shoot, we almost got away with our ruse of the public, but Warren Moser came along and explained, no, this is standard stuff. And now you got to step back though, and just rhetorically look at what the MMT people are trying to do. Remember, the whole point of this, it was Stephanie Kelton, one of her papers, like this is part of the MMT lore, that Stephanie Kelton, back when she was Stephanie Bell, didn't believe it. She thought that the government needed to, before it could spend, for it had to first either raise the funds through taxation or borrow it, borrow them. And then she, the scales fell from her eyes as she went to do, you know, research that. And that's what made her all of a sudden agree with, I think it was Randall Ray was the person converted her. I might be wrong about that. Okay, so that's where all this is coming from. And even like, you know, you heard that guy interviewing Mosler for this most recent version of it, iteration of it. Okay, so the whole point of this discussion or debate, whatever you want to call it, was the MMT claim that, hey, you're taught that the government needs to either, if the government's going to spend, it has to first raise the funds through taxation or borrowing, but that's not true. 
Because what happens is when the government needs to spend, it just instructs the Fed to go ahead and credit the recipient's account. And then when the critics point out, no, but you haven't proven your case yet because legally the Fed will only comply with such an order if the Treasury already has the funds in its account. And you just saw how Mosler, you know, he didn't deny that. Mosler didn't say that's not true. Mosler said, well, yeah, okay, sure. But then the Fed came up with a workaround. And notice what the workaround entailed. It entailed the Fed getting funds into the hands of broker dealers so that people in the private sector could afford to buy government bonds. Okay. So again, even with this quote workaround, it is still true that in order for the treasury to spend money on anything, it first needs to have the funds obtained through taxation or, you know, other things like fees or something or through borrowing. And Mosler didn't refute that by pointing out, well, yeah, if they can't directly, they already have the money beforehand in their checking account, they can just go borrow it. Right. That's what we said all along. Okay. So far from proving MMT is right, they're conceding that no, on this central claim, MMT is totally 100% wrong. It is not true that the treasury can spend money first and then later come up with it. No, the treasury has to have it first. Okay. So and then, too, you guys, oh, we're kind of quibbling about it. Well, no, we're not. Dollars existed before the Federal Reserve did, right? It wasn't that the U.S. dollar came into existence in Christmas time, 1913, which is when the Federal Reserve Act was signed. No, dollars existed before then, all right? So it's, and we can push it back further. And the Constitution defined a dollar as a certain amount of grains of gold or silver and blah, blah, blah. Okay, we can do all that. But you see the point that there's these, like, these glib demonstrations in quotation marks, about, well, gee, I mean, how could people have dollars to pay their taxes if the government didn't first spend them into it? Well, they did, okay? <laughs> That's the MMT story. It's like they, they're, it's almost like a creation myth or something. And that in the beginning, there was nothing. And then the Fed said, let there be dollars. And that's just not what happened historically. It's wrong, all right? So there you go. All right, now shifting gears somewhat, I want to talk about the claim that both MMTers and standard New Keynesians and Paul Krugmanwold share. And the reason I'm saying that, just so you're not confused, is Krugman is not an MMTer. In fact, he directly went head to head with Stephanie Kelton. It may partly be because Krugman was jealous that the MMT people are the cool kids now and nobody has time for Paul Krugman after his cameo with uh, Jonah Hill. But in any event, Krugman makes fun of MMT people, all right, and thinks that he's a real scientist and they're hacks. But where they agree is to say that, especially if you already have a weak economy, especially if you're in a liquidity trap and interest rates are very low, that the worst thing you could do if you're worried about a government debt getting too big is to try to slash spending in order to get your fiscal house in order, that that's self-defeating that you're going to plunge the economy into a bad recession, maybe a depression. And on top of that, you're probably not even going to fix the government's finances because now everyone's out of work and tax revenues drop. And so it's not even like it's too painful to be worth it. It's that it doesn't even do anything for you. Okay. So in that context, the ECB, I misspoke, by the way, on the Human Action Podcast, I said it was the World Bank that put out this study. It wasn't. It was the ECB. I knew it wasn't the UN and I knew it wasn't the IMF. 
but I should have realized that it makes more sense that the ECB would do it, right? Because they're the German influence. There's still like a hard money mentality over there, whereas World Bank is not hard money at all. So the ECB put out a bulletin where they went through some historical case studies of, I guess all case studies are historical, of cases of what they called expansionary austerity. Specifically, it was governments that had been running big deficits, their debt to GDP ratio was getting out of hand, and they managed to improve their fiscal position while their economy did not suffer. Okay, so that's the term expansionary austerity. Now, what's interesting is they stressed even in that bulletin, and this, of course, lines up with Austrian theory, is that the examples where this worked particularly well were ones where the government fixed its finances not through massive tax increases, but through spending cuts. Okay, and incidentally, now this is me talking. Well, it's been me talking. <laughs> How many times are you going to use that joke, Bob? You have to be careful. A lot of times when people talk about austerity and they'll say, oh, like the IMF came in and gave a loan to some South American government, you know, some right-wing authoritarian or whatever, and they imposed austerity measures and it was just awful for the people. And look at the pain of it. And, you know, combined with privatization and, and liberalization, and then these international companies came in and just raped the land. and So in many cases, yeah, a lot of that is like within the same zip code of the truth. Like I'm not saying that they're, but their specific diagnoses, a lot of times they're overlooking the fact that what will often happen is the IMF would come in and in their so-called liberalization program, because a country's debt was getting out of hand, they would insist on massive tax hikes, thinking that was the responsible, fiscally conservative thing to do, that, hey, you can't just keep running this red ink. You got to raise revenue. So go ahead and increase your income tax by 12 percentage points or something. And so it's not surprising in that kind of environment that if the economy already was in trouble, like that's why the government was running huge budget deficits and running the printing press, that to then have a giant tax hike isn't good. By the way, Herbert Hoover did that in 1932. So yeah, Herbert Hoover had awful policies, but not because he was a small government man. Among other things, he had drastic hikes in the income tax rates, on the, you know, the various schedule brackets. Okay, so what this ECB report stressed was that what governments need to do, at least if we're going to have history be our guide, if you have budget deficits that are chronic and that the bond markets may be getting ready to turn on you, and so you really need to turn your house around, fiscal house around, do it through cutting spending. Don't try to do it through raising taxes. And that appears to fit the historical pattern where the countries that opted for that approach, for some reason, didn't have a bad economy afterward, even though, according to standard Keynesian theory, they should have. Folks, let's take a break from the action to explain what you can do to help make a difference. If you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute, you'll see some interesting offers there and you know what to do. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so let me read a little bit of that. Okay, so here, th this is me talking, like I'm reading myself. This, this is an article I wrote for Mises. And so I wrote this in, when was this? I think it was, in, yeah, 2010. So this is me from a 2010 article. And I'll obviously link all this stuff, folks, bobmurvyshow.com slash 280. 
Ironically, a recent empirical case for fiscal austerity came from the June Bulletin of the European Central Bank. In the wake of the Greek debt crisis, European governments are naturally keen on reining in their deficits. The ECB report looked at the historical episodes where Belgium, Ireland, Spain, the Netherlands, and Finland reduced their budget deficits. Three of the countries saw immediate improvements in economic growth, but all benefited in the long run from tightening government finances. Okay, and then I explain how they stress spending cuts. Okay, so here's what Paul Krugman said in response. It's really amazing to see how quickly the notion that contractionary fiscal policy is actually expansionary is spreading. As I noted yesterday, this Panglossian view has now become official doctrine at the ECB. So what does this view rest on? Partly on vague ideas about credibility and confidence, but largely in the supposed lessons of experience of countries that saw economic expansion after major austerity programs. Yet if you look at these cases, every one turns out to involve key elements that make it useless as a precedent for our current situation. Okay, let me stop right there. Even if that were true, it still is a concern for the Keynesian view, right? That it's generally speaking, when the Keynesians explain why it would be a bad idea for the government to cut spending when the economy is already on the ropes because, you know, oh, geez, we've been running big budget deficits. We better do something about that. Let's go on and we cut this, the spending. The Keynesians don't normally say, oh, yes, that probably would work. It's just that. If all the governments around the world tried to do that, then it wouldn't work if they did it simultaneously. But yeah, if any one of you cut spending 10% when unemployment was already high, that would probably boost the economy. No, no Keynesian talks like that. They say, what are you, out of your mind? If the government cuts spending, that's just going to reduce income, dollar for dollar. What are you, an idiot? Duh. Haven't you heard of the paradox of saving? Don't you know what a liquidity trade? Right? That's how they talk. So already Krugman is moving the goalposts. But anyway, let's go back to the narrative here. Okay, here's a list of fiscal turnarounds and I put in brackets a different list from the ECB bulletin. Okay, so in his discussion, Krugman first mentioned the ECB, but now he's switching to a different list. And in particular, the case of Canada is in this other list that somebody else touted as examples of successful examples of fiscal austerity, or sorry, expansionary austerity and now Krugman's going to go through and one by one explain why they're wrong or why they're not useful to us, the world, as of 2010. Canada, 94 to 98. So this is now Krugman's going to go through point by point and explain why each of these cases doesn't count. Fiscal contraction took place as a strong recovery was already underway, as exports were booming, and as the Bank of Canada was cutting interest rates. As Stephen Gordon explains, all of this means that the experience offers few lessons for policy when the whole world is depressed and interest rates are already as low as they can go. Moving on, Denmark, 82 to 86. Yes, private spending rose, mainly thanks to a 10 percentage point drop in long-term interest rates, hard to manage when rates in major economies are currently 2 to 3%. Finland, 92 to 2000. Yes, you can have a sharp fiscal contraction with an expanding economy if you also see a swing toward a current account surplus of more than 12% of GDP. So if everyone in the world can move into massive trade surplus, we'll all be fine. Ireland, 1987 to 89. Been there, done that. Let's all devalue, with an exclamation point. Also, an interest rate story, something like Denmark's. Sweden, 92 to 2000. Again, a large swing towards trade surplus. So every one of these stories says that you can have fiscal contraction without depressing the economy if, and he's got if in caps, the depressing effects are offset by huge moves into trade surplus and or sharp declines in interest rates. Since the world as a whole can't move into surplus, 
And since major economies already have very low interest rates, none of this is relevant to our current situation. Okay, so like I said, just to reiterate my earlier point, already Krugman's moving the goalposts. That in standard terms, when Keynesians are explaining why sharp cuts in government spending if the economy is already in recession is a bad idea, they don't say, oh yeah, this would actually work. It's just, it would be kind of unfair for us to try to do this because then all the other governments around the world are going to try to do it too or something. You know, like that's not what they say. There's going to lead to a race to the bottom of us all trying to export to each other. No, it's pretty straightforward. Like, geez, this is basic arithmetic. Don't you understand that one person's spending is another person's income? Duh. Okay, so there shouldn't be all these examples. Or put, let me put it this way. We would have no idea that there were all these historical examples of governments cutting spending sharply and growing right through it and not having a bad economy if the Austerians hadn't brought it to our attention. It wasn't like the Keynesians ever said, now don't get me wrong, there's like eight different historical examples of countries doing exactly what we say is impossible. But if you think about it, really in our current situation, we can't all do those things. And so therefore, let's not mention that. No, there was nothing like that. You would have no idea this ever happened in history. You would have thought this was impossible, except for the fact that a bunch of Austerians brought it to the attention of the economists to then discuss. Okay, but putting that aside now, let's go through. There's nothing tricky about what's happening in these cases. If the standard model of the world of the people who think government spending is wasteful and that the central bank printing money doesn't make you wealthier and that, gee, if you're having a bad economy, maybe you should release resources out of the political sector where they're unproductive and return them to the private sector where they're more productive All of that stuff is entirely consistent with what Krugman is saying happened in each of these historical cases. All right, so let me just walk through that. And this isn't even Austrian. This is, I mean, it's consistent with the Austrian view, but this is more like, I don't know what you'd call classical, maybe, or new, it's hard because I want to say neoclassical because then that conjures up some things too. But anyway, this is just like kind of old school markets work, government intervention tends to be inefficient thinking, right? This is how this works, right? So if the government spends more than it takes in in tax revenue, how does it get the money? It borrows it. Okay, let's not worry right now about running the printing press to either monetize the deficits like through helping the private brokers come up with the money or just literally running the printing press to pay vendor directly. Let's put that aside for the moment, okay? So if the government runs a big budget deficit, how does it cover it? It issues bonds. Other things equal. So let's say the government's spending $5 trillion and it only has $3 trillion in tax revenue. So it has to borrow $2 trillion. So the government goes to the bond market and it borrows, you know, it floats $2 trillion of bonds now. So that means before the government did that, whatever saving there was, was getting allocated to private investment. And now the government's going to come in and it needs to redirect $2 trillion of saving into government spending. So what's going to happen? Again, other things equal. Interest rates are going to rise. That's going to cause people to save more. That's going to cause businesses to borrow less. So private investment goes down. You may have heard the term crowding out. That's what that refers to. It's the idea that government budget deficits crowd out private investment because the saving that's coming from the private sector 
is now some of it is being redirected away from the private sector into government coffers. Okay. So what if now the government reverses that and the government cuts spending by, let's say $2 trillion in this example. So they have a balanced budget that they raise 3 trillion in taxes. And instead of spending 5 trillion, now they cut spending by 2 trillion down to 3 trillion. And so they don't have to borrow that money. So what happens now? The demand for loanable funds drops by 2 trillion at the existing interest rate. So what happens now? There's a glut of savings. So interest rates fall and that has two effects. It causes the private sector to save less because, you know, now the reward on the margin for saving is lower and it causes private businesses to borrow more. So private investment goes up until balance is restored, that the quantity of loanable funds saved equals the quantity borrowed. All right. So it's entirely natural to suppose that in a case where a government drastically cuts spending when before it had been running huge budget deficits that you would see interest rates fall and not because the central bank is now all of a sudden loosening but just because a huge player in the bond market now that was before demanding loanable funds has stopped doing so just like if the government had been buying a lot of steel to make tanks and then stopped and the price of steel fell you wouldn't say ah the central bank is now engaging in a loose steel policy now, it's a little bit trickier because, of course, the central bank does, quote, set interest rates in a sense. But even there, it's not that the central bank can just do whatever it wants with no ramifications. Really, what it means is, yeah, they can have a target, but then depending on the macroeconomic environment, that target can be more or less painful to maintain, right? So the Fed in 1978 could not very easily have kept T-bill yields at 1%. Right, it had to raise rates given the realities of the situation. And so what a central bank would find itself in, the position it would be in, in a context where the government drastically reduced borrowing is that it would look like, I suppose, you know, from their point of view, oh, the economy is slowing down and then they would lower interest rates. Okay, but again, so I understand why Krugman and his framework thinks that's the same thing as, oh, thank God the central bank came in to offset the contractionary fiscal policy with expansionary monetary policy, but it wouldn't require them to pump more money and the Fed wouldn't need to go buy bonds. I guess that's the way to get at it. It's that they could lower their target without you know, there being a problem in terms of open market operations. Okay. Now, what about currencies or you know, net exports? So think of it this way, forget commerce for the moment, forget about financial issues. Just imagine you're Martians in space looking down on planet earth and, you know, looking at humans as if you're looking at ant colonies or something. And one way to think about it is before the U S government, when it was spending more in my example, when it was spending 5 trillion and then it reduced spending to 3 trillion, right? So $2 trillion worth of goods and services that were being directed according to government policy are now being released from that. And if, just go with me for a moment, if the private sector in the economy in question doesn't just reduce its activity, but instead maintains full employment and full capacity and output and so forth, and doesn't quote, go into a recession, what does that look like? 
Well, it just means instead of the factories and businesses churning out stuff for the government, they would switch and churn out stuff for other customers. And so there's no reason that it would all 100% go to just the domestic citizens, right? So if we're talking about the U.S. and the government originally was spending $5 trillion, then it cuts it down to $3 trillion. And the economy, if it doesn't just fall into depression, if it doesn't shrink by 40%, what does that look like? Well, clearly it means that the demand that was previously supplied by the government spending $2 trillion is now supplied by somebody else. So just in terms of physically, technologically speaking, mechanically, Again, those businesses that before were catering to the government now just switch what they're doing and they sell to other buyers. And there's no reason to suppose that they would all be private citizens living in the country in question. They would, you know, Americans in this case. It could be other countries, people living in other countries too. And so how would that show up now if we're going to superimpose economic statistics and accounting mechanisms on top of that real technological outcome? Oh, all of a sudden, U.S. net exports went up. That instead of sending $2 trillion of stuff to Washington, now maybe they're sending an extra $1.5 trillion to the private sector in the United States and $500 billion to foreigners, more than they did last year. So that would show up as an increase in net exports of $500 billion. Now, if just like we told the story about what happened with saving and whatever, and oh, interest rates, quote, had to fall to make that happen or to facilitate that. Likewise here, what would happen to facilitate this increase in net exports in this hypothetical case of the U.S. government cutting spending by $2 trillion that then stimulates, by assumption, $500 billion more in net exports? Well, what would happen is the dollar would weaken against other currencies. And so that would make Americans, when they're looking at the price of other goods, the foreign goods, they all of a sudden would look more expensive. So that would make Americans buy less of that, buy less of fewer foreign goods and buy more domestic goods. And foreigners, from their point of view, American exports now are cheaper. And so on the margin, they would increase their purchases of U.S. exports. So U.S. exports would increase and imports would decrease. So net exports would increase. And also the fact that U.S. consumers are going to switch out of what they used to import, some of that's going to now, they're going to get domestically. So this is going to, again, partly help explain how is it that U.S. businesses that before were catering to this $2 trillion that they were producing for Washington, now they got to produce for somewhere else. And part of the slack is Americans before the U.S turn to foreign producers and now they're going to buy domestically because the dollar is going to weaken. All right. So that's just, again, to kind of, you, you kind of know what the big picture has to be mechanically. And then now I'm trying to give you more insight into what happens with actual prices and things to guide people because it's not that everybody has to know, oh, what's going on is the federal government reduced its spending by 2 trillion, thus balancing the budget. And hence, I better go export more to Japan now because otherwise the trade accounts will be like, no, you don't even need to worry about that. If you're a producer of cars or whatever, all you need to see is, huh, for some reason, the demand from Japanese buyers has gone up. I wonder why, you know, I mean, you don't have to be stupid, but that's what you need. Prices still do their work in these types of scenarios and communicate information and give guidance. Okay. Now you might be puzzled. You might say, huh, that's funny. 
Oh, before I get into that, let me just mention. So again, we see how the Keynesians, and that's what, um, did he say it? Devaluation? Yes. So this ties in now with what Krugman was saying, that before you talk about Denmark, oh, dropping interest rates, I've covered that to explain why that's not some trick that, oh, you guys got lucky that when these governments cut their spending that the central bank facilitated by slashing interest rates, that falling interest rates, even without a central bank, that's what would happen, right? So it's not that the central banks gave an assist. They just passively went along with the fundamentals would now be. And likewise, when Krugman's saying, oh, Ireland, 1987 to 89, been there, done that, let's all devalue, right? So I didn't click on his link there, but it must be that Ireland from 87 to 89, their currency fell and that facilitated a net export boom. And then, oh, gee, that's why Ireland was able to get away with their fiscal austerity without plunging into recession because their currency got devalued. So again, it sounds like from McKinsey, the central bank to the rescue, they cut interest rates and they, they devalue the currency, debase it, as you right-wingers would say. I thought you right-wingers liked a strong currency and you were hard money types, but ooh, apparently now you're pointing to examples where the central bank engaged in loose money and they pushed down interest rates. I thought you guys were against them pushing down interest rates. I thought that would lead to, a, you know, an unsustainable boom. And they debased the currency. Ooh, when that's under QE and Ben Bernanke's doing it and helps Obama, you don't like that. Okay, so you understand where Krugman's coming from. But again, he's wrong. This is standard stuff. This is what you would expect to happen. It's what has to happen, right? If a government, a country in isolation were to do this. Of course, if the government reduces its consumption, or it could even be investment, if you want to, you know, if the government's building bridges or something, you can call it investment, I don't care. But if real resources that before were getting siphoned away in the government projects are now being released to the private sector, it's going to show up as more consumption and private consumption and private investment. And to the extent that some of that happens to be from foreigners, it's going to show up as net exports increasing. All right, and so how are they going to do that? Again, and it's also going to show up, you know, how's the private investment going to go up? Because interest rates are going to drop. And how are foreigners going to be able to buy more U.S. goods? And why would Americans not want to buy as many foreign goods? Because the currency falls. But again, it's not because the central bank independently came in to save the day. It's that what would happen is that the currency would fall like through quote, fundamental reasons. The central bank would not have to buy more bonds the central bank's balance sheet would not have to increase in order for the dollar, in this case, to fall against other currencies. Okay, so I'm stressing that. It's not that the Fed would have to engage in loose policy except to passively let, you know, it would reduce its target interest rate, but it would find that in order to do that, it didn't need to buy more bonds. All right, and it would see the dollar would be falling in the foreign exchange markets against the yen and the euro and whatever even though the Fed wasn't pumping in more dollars, right? So other things equal, if the Fed all of a sudden doubled the monetary base, you might expect the dollar to fall against other currencies. And then it would make sense to say, oh, geez, the Fed's debasing the dollar and that's why it's falling against the euro in the end with its running, you know, running the printing press. But in this case, no, even if the Fed didn't increase this quantity of dollars or the stock of money by one penny, the dollar would fall against other currencies. Now, why would that happen? And again, this might puzzle you at first because you might have thought, you know, you're someone who likes balanced budgets and, you know, Andrew Jackson's your hero and he paid off the national debt and hard money, man, by God. You might have thought 
that I favor a strong dollar. But what's happening here, again, it's, you understand like the U.S. has to increase net exports. Not that it has to, but that's a natural thing that would happen if just the U.S. did it on its own in the thought experiment. And so the price is, how are people going to be led to do that? Well, the currency has to fall. But to be clear, it's not that CPI would rise, okay? So it's not that Americans, in fact, domestic prices could fall. You know, we'd have to get more specific about the scenario and say, what's the Fed doing or whatever? But that's partly how it could be that private consumption goes up, is that prices come down. And so consumers buy more stuff, right? Because again, businesses have to retool. Instead of sending $2 trillion worth of product and services to the government, now they got to give it to other people if employment's going to be maintained. So what does it look like if it were to happen is now households have to consume more too, right? Businesses invest more, but households have to consume more. And that all kind of dovetails, right? Why would the businesses invest more if all of a sudden their sales fell off a cliff? But if households are consuming more and interest rates come down, then businesses might say, oh, okay, so yeah, let's go ahead and expand our investment and open up more factories and plan on increasing our capacity because we're selling a lot more. Our government sales just tanked, but private sales are through the roof. Okay. Right, so this all dovetails. And so again, what would that look like? Why would the households do that? Well, if prices came down and things were cheaper now, they'd buy more, even though their incomes hadn't gone down. Okay. But even so, the dollar could still fall against other currencies. Now, we would have to get more specific. The dollar doesn't need to fall as much if U.S. prices fall, right? So if U.S. prices fall 10%, even if the dollar stays the same against other currencies, then foreigners would buy more U.S. exports and Americans would not buy as much foreign exports and would switch over to domestic just because of the change in the U.S. price level. But it could be in practice a mix, a combination of both. That the dollar still falls against the yen and the euro, blah, 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 while prices come down domestically, measured in dollars. Now, to understand though, okay, but Bob, why is that happening? What's going on? If the Fed's not flooding the market with more dollars, why would the yen price of a dollar go down? Or looking the other way, why would the dollar price of a yen go up if people don't have more dollars in hand with which to you know, bid up foreign currencies? Because that's normally what would happen, right? And if you're just, you know, again, new thought experiment, everything's normal, and then the Fed just comes in and doubles the quantity of dollars overnight. Other things equal, what's going to happen is the dollar is going to fall against other currencies. And why? Well, because now Americans have a lot more money to spend and they want to buy more foreign exports. So they go into the foreign exchange markets armed with twice as many dollars as they had before and bid up the price of euros and yen so they can buy European exports and Japanese exports. And then that, to say that the dollar price of the yen or euro goes up is the same thing as saying the dollar depreciates against them. You need to spend more dollars to get one yen or one euro. So that's saying the dollar fell against those currencies. But that doesn't mean anytime the dollar falls against those currencies, it's because the Fed has debased the dollar. So in this case, what would happen, that going back to the example of governments cutting spending $2 trillion to balance the budget, what would happen is, remember we said interest rates fall. And here we're talking about U.S. interest rates. So if you're a foreign investor now, you don't 
find American debt as attractive as you did before, right? That if before a 10-year treasury had a yield of 8% and now it only has a yield of 4%, it's not as attractive to you. So those foreigners who before were effectively lending government to the, or yeah, lending money to the U.S. government, now they aren't doing it as much. So that's one way of, of seeing what's going on here is before when the government was running a $2 trillion deficit, it wasn't being financed purely by Americans. Some of it was being financed by foreigners in the general case. And so now if that gets cut off, something has to happen so that foreigners don't want to invest in treasury debt as much. And so we've already explained what happens as interest rates fall, especially particularly on government debt. So now just think through that logic, though. If foreigners now, you know, some institutional money manager in Japan who before spent a bunch of yen buying the equivalent of a billion dollars worth of treasuries last year, now because the yields could cut in half, doesn't want to buy any of them. Well, now that's fewer yen that are going into the currency markets, the Forex markets, to bid up dollars, right? Because to get the billion dollars of treasuries, he had to first turn his yen into dollars. Well, you know, last year when the government was running the big deficit. So now he's refraining from doing that. And so are a bunch of other capital holders. And so what does that do? Fewer foreigners are now trying to buy dollars because they don't find U.S. debt as attractive. And so that's why the dollar falls. Okay. And this also lines up, if you know how the international trade accounts work, when there is a trade deficit, well, let's call it a current account deficit. And it has to do with the fact that you can earn income if you have assets in other countries. Okay, so if, if Americans owned a trillion dollars worth of Japanese stock and it yielded a 10% dividend, right? So that was $100 billion in earnings in terms of yen or whatever. And then the American just spent that that could be a $100 billion trade deficit, but the current account would be balanced. Okay, so effectively, the, like, they'd be like, oh, because you invested in Japanese stock back in the day, every year we send you $100 billion worth of cars as a payment on that. And that would not show the U.S. sinking ever deeper into debt. That would just be your earnings from your foreign property. Okay, so that thing is called the current account. So a lot of times when we argue about international trade, especially like a populist candidate or something like Donald Trump kind of guy, they're going to look at the trade deficit and complain and say, this is unsustainable. But strictly speaking, it's the current account deficit that is more relevant in terms of, hey, are we maybe in some sense doing something irresponsible? Is this sustainable? That it's a current account is what you care about. Even there, that it's way more nuanced than, you know, a current account deficit's not per se a bad thing. But I'm just saying that's more in line with what people have with their thinking than the trade deficit. So anyway, though, where I'm going with this is current account deficit is the accounting mirror image of a capital account surplus. Okay. And so one way of thinking about it back when in this thought experiment in the previous year, when the U.S. government was running that $2 trillion deficit, some of which was being financed by foreigners, that money coming from the foreigners, like if they were buying treasuries, let's say, that was a capital account surplus or contributed to it, that foreigners were investing more in U.S. assets 
that Americans were investing in foreign assets. And that's what well, that would mean the U.S. would have a capital account surplus with the rest of the world. So if the U.S. has a capital account surplus with the rest of the world, it has to have a current account deficit. And that can show up, you know, the trade deficit could be part of that, a component of that. All right. So one way of thinking about it is, oh, if the foreigners around the world want to acquire more treasury securities, what is it? That's a promise from a U.S. institution, happens to be the government, is going to pay them down the road. So in order to get that promise, that IOU, the foreigner has to give us something right now in exchange for it. And so it could be effectively a bunch of cars, right? So if you want to abstract away from the money, it could effectively be saying, oh, we here in Japan will send you guys some cars right now, but then 10 years from now, you're going to send us the ability to buy a lot more cars from you that we might not, maybe, or wheat or whatever. Maybe we'll roll it over, but you know, that's the idea. Of course, these things are actually in terms of money, just different monies, because there's international currencies involved, international trade. But if you want to think in real terms, like what's going on fundamentally, that's one way of thinking about it. So I'm just trying to drive home the point that when a government is running a big budget deficit that's partly being financed by foreigners, that often would go hand in hand with a trade deficit. And that makes sense because, again, to think about a big picture, what's going on is foreigners have to send us goodies now in exchange for U.S. institutions to say, down the road, we owe you purchasing power. So when you unwind that, it's not surprising to see that when the foreigners stop lending money to the government, to the U.S. government, that you also see a drop in the amount of foreign goods flowing into the U.S. economy because now the U.S is not thinking deeper into its liabilities or obligations to foreigners in terms of future payments due or owed. And so they're not on the hook to give us present goods in exchange for that. And so that's why we don't see goods from other countries flowing into the country as much. Hence an increase in U.S. net exports. Okay, so I think that's probably a good... Well, let me, let me just tie up all the loose ends though. So you can see it's not that with these cases where individual one-off countries engaged in austerity, fiscal austerity, and their economies were just fine, thank you very much, that, oh, well, that doesn't really count. That's kind of, well, they just got lucky because their currencies were devalued or their interest rates dropped or whatever. That's kind of like saying, oh, well, this guy claims that these people who are morbidly obese, if they change their diet and increase their exercise, that that would help them improve their health. But really... If you go through each individual person that he cited as a success story, no, it's not so much the diet and the exercise. Really, in, in each case, it was, you can see their cholesterol fell and their body fat went way down and they just lost weight and gin. They built muscle. That's really what was going on there. So yeah, let's not draw any false conclusions here about the efficacy of changing your diet and increasing exercise. Because unless you can show me that those other things, you know, we, unless your cholesterol can drop, you know, it doesn't really... You see what I'm saying? That Krugman's pointing to the necessary results according to the standard model of the person who would be in favor of austerity. That's exactly what we would have expected to happen. It's not like this is some embarrassing thing that, oh, we got lucky and thank goodness the central bank came in to do what we wouldn't have wanted it to do to save our bacon. No, this is standard stuff. 
If you think government deficits crowd out private investment, the mechanism that you would explain that by is that, oh yeah, when the government runs a big deficit, interest rates go up. And so the private sector doesn't borrow as much. The savings get absorbed by the government. Incidentally, this also ties in with MMT and their sectoral balance approach. You rearrange their equations and you get one that says G minus T equals S minus I, right? So G being government spending, T being taxes, S being private saving, and I being private investment. I abstracted away. Net exports is also in there, but I just took that away just to be simpler. Let's not worry about that. I mean, the logic still works, but it just makes it more things to keep track of. Okay, so that equation is where the MMT people think, oh, see, this is why government budget deficits are necessary for net private saving. Because if you want the private sector to be able to save on net, by which they mean saving exceeding investment, then that can only happen if G exceeds T, right? Because G minus T equals S minus I. And so that I would just say, well, who cares? When right-winger hard money types favor high savings, it's because they like high investment. It doesn't foil our plans to say, ah, yes, we got the private sector to save more, but shoot, the private sector correspondingly invested more too. Gosh darn it, building all these factories and irrigating all this farmland. What are you doing? And sending all these students to college to become brain surgeons. That's going to foil our plan. We had good, we had high hopes for the private saving, but now you've squandered it all through private investment and productive enterprise. No, see, what are you talking about? That's the whole point. In fact, it's often laid at the feet of the private enterprise that it doesn't work because, oh, depending on if it's a depression or liquidity trap, people try to save more, it won't get channeled into investment. Little footnote in the general theory, Keynes has an argument to show savings always equals investment. Let's not go down that path right now, though, depending on how you define the terms. I'm talking here about the equation by which saving doesn't need to equal investment in the sense that G minus T equals S minus I. Okay? Also, I can use that exact same equation to show the possibility of crowding out, right? So you got G minus T on the left-hand side. So let's say G goes up and T doesn't. So now government spending has risen. Tax revenue stays the same, so that means the deficit increased. So we know the right-hand side has to go up. And let's say you could make that equation balance by making I go down. That's crowding out, right? So I just use the MMT sectoral balance equation to show, yep, if the government increases its deficit spending, it just crowds out private investment. So if you don't want private industry to get fewer funds, you certainly don't want the government to run up a budget deficit. Okay, now it need not do that, right? The MMT people might argue, oh no, the way that the equation stays balanced is S goes up. Okay, but I'm just saying the equation itself doesn't tell you when you change one letter, what happens to the rest of the equation. It just shows you what has to happen to all of them put together. Okay, now it's true, to go back to Krugman, if every government around the world simultaneously eliminated its government deficit spending and balanced their budgets without raising taxes through spending cuts, it's not that all the currencies would depreciate against each other. That no, what would happen in a case like that, and then if the central banks held pat and didn't engage in expansion, you know, didn't pump in more money, what would probably happen is, you know, interest rates would still drop in all the countries around the world. And that's partly why the currencies wouldn't fall, right? Because you wouldn't have the effect that I said before where the investors said, ooh, the Japanese investors saw interest rates drop in the United States so what I wasn't talking about was presumably they stayed the same in Japan. 
So that's where they would shift out of U.S. assets and into Japanese ones or other countries. But if interest rates in every country all went down the same amount, then the investors wouldn't all of a sudden reallocate their investment decisions on that score. And so you wouldn't see changes in currencies for that. Now, what would probably happen in that case is domestic prices around the world would drop. And that's how you would get households to increase their consumption spending and businesses because the fall in interest rates would increase their investment, their private investment. And that's what would fill the gap. So yeah, if all the countries did it simultaneously, it wouldn't be that the fall in one government's spending was, that that vacuum was filled by increases in spending, or sorry, that, that it wouldn't be fueled by increases in spending from in foreigners too on the domestic output. It would just all be, that gap would all be filled by the people's, I mean, international trade could increase, but it would be more balanced that exports and imports might simultaneously increase. So international trade per se would go up the gross flows, but net exports obviously for planet earth can't go up because their net exports are zero for the planet as a whole. But private consumption can go up across the board. Private investment can go up as government consumption investment go down, right? The macroeconomic accounting tautologies, sectoral balance approach, whatever you want to call it, is all consistent with that, right? So you can't use accounting identities. This comes down to economic theory. And so our theory is internally consistent to tell this kind of a story. And we have a bunch of historical examples where it worked. By the way, the example of Canada is great. So let me actually read that. So this is from a different article I had. So I teamed up with some guys at the Fraser. Actually, what's the Fraser? No, it wasn't the Fraser. It's too. It was different. It was a different Canadian think tank in 2012. But that publication, I don't think it's the PDF is available. I think you actually have to buy the physical book. And so I would point you to David R. Henderson has a study for Mercatus where he goes through the same thing from 2010. And so you, if you want to see some of the statistics and graphs and things, you can look at David's article. But here, let me just read a little bit. So this is my econ lib article talking about this case. And I had all these numbers fresh in my mind because I had done this thing myself for this Canadian outlet. So th this is me now talking on the econ lib. By the mid-1990s, the Canadian federal government had been running deficits for two decades with one-third of federal revenue being absorbed by interest payments. A Wall Street Journal editorial on January 12, 1995, declared that Canada, quote, has now become an honorary member of the third world and the unmanageability of its debt problem. Yet the, so this is back to me now. Yet the Canadians swiftly solved the crisis with serious reforms. In just two years, from 1995 to 1997, total federal government spending fell by more than 7%. Again, spending actually came down. I'm not talking about a slowdown in the rate of growth. The absolute level of total federal Canadian government spending from 95 to 97 fell by more than 7%. While the budget deficit of $32 billion, which was 4% of GDP at the start of that, was transformed into a $2.5 billion surplus. Now, there were some tax increases, but the ratio of spending cuts to tax increases was about 5 to 1. Listen to this. Canada's federal government ran 11 consecutive budget surpluses, causing the debt-to-GDP ratio to plummet from 78% in 96 to 39% in 2007. 
Okay. So this is, you know, I'm not quoting now. I'm speaking extemporaneously. If the Keynesians and the MTers are right, that should have been catastrophic. And yet that was fine. Canada did not even go into recession, even though the U.S. had the dot-com recession in that period, right? And there was the 9-11 attacks. All right. So it would have been entirely plausible if you were a Keynesian or an MMTer to think Canada by this crazy move where they reduced their debt to GDP ratio almost in half, cut it in half, ran 11 consecutive budget surplus. And again, it wasn't that they had had a balanced budget prior to this. They had had two decades of big deficits. All right. So you would think this would have been crazy, but no, it was fine. So this is back to my Econ Lib article. In the decade after reform, Canada outperformed all the other G7 nations on economic growth, investment, and job creation. Even in the short term, Canada's dramatic spending cuts and moderate tax increases in the mid-90s had only mild side effects, causing only a temporary uptick in the unemployment rate. All right. So again, great case study. Another, well, and then when you ask, okay, when has this ever worked for the Keynesians? Okay. So again, there's Plenty of case studies where fiscal austerity, quote, worked and did what people like me said it would do. And Krugman's got a story to explain away all those cases or, you know, to at least say, well, it doesn't count now. All right. And then you say, okay, what evidence do you have for fiscal stimulus? And they don't. They'll point to things like the 1930s. The 1930s were awful. It was, quote, the Great Depression. The 1930s was the worst economic experience in U.S. history. So the Keynesians can say, oh, things would have been even worse if FDR hadn't run big budget. By the way, Herbert Hoover ran big budget deficits too. All right. He foolishly jacked up income tax rates in 32 because the budget deficit was so high or, you know, the debt he'd piled on was making him panic. But that was his first go-to move was to try to use government deficit spending to get out of that rut. And he also told businesses, don't cut wage rates. Not a good move. All right. So the Keynesians can argue that had FDR had a balanced budget throughout the 30s, the Great Depression would be even worse and unemployment would have been 40%. But it's certainly not a success story. The way Austerians can point to Canada and Ireland and Finland and blah, 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 all these examples where it actually worked. The Keynesians can't point to a single one. You might think it was, oh, what about, so another example would be the Obama stimulus package. They point to that and say, oh, it's a good thing. We didn't have you Austerians at the helm. Obama came in and even there. No, the economy was terrible. And what their excuse was is to say, well, it would have been even worse. But even that, they're slippery, right? So famously, Christina Romer was the head of the Council of Economic Advisors. And I think Jared Bernstein was the second in command or whatever. And they famously or infamously said before the Obama stimulus package got passed, Obama got elected in 2008 and they're coming in and they pushed through the stimulus package in early 2009. And they had this paper to explain, you know, to justify it. And they famously or infamously said, they had this projection showing that, oh, if we do nothing, unemployment will rise to a certain level. However, if we implement the Obama stimulus package, will limit the increase in unemployment. So they went ahead and they passed the Obama package. And guess what? Actual unemployment not only went above what Romer and Bernstein said it would, 
with the pack, stimulus package, it went higher than what they warned would happen if they did nothing. Okay? And to make sure, you, in case you don't know that, like that's kind of a big deal. And the way the Keynes, you know, they didn't, the Keynes didn't admit defeat. They didn't say, oh, geez, sorry, we got this one wrong. They just said, wolf, it's a good thing we ran that huge budget deficit when, you know, stimulus package because the economy was even worse shaped than we realized, right? So they just, they're completely wed to the idea that government deficit spending helps an economy. And even if they have a huge increase in government deficit spending and the economy gets worse than even they thought it was, they don't entertain the possibility that maybe your government deficit spending made it worse. No, it's just, geez, there was this latent illness that we hadn't detected because we all know a priori government deficit spending creates jobs. Okay. And then they also made the same mistake on the back end with the so-called budget sequester. So guys like Krugman were calling it a fiscal doomsday device in reference to Dr. Strangelove, by which we're going to just blow up the economy on our own for no reason, preemptively, a preemptive strike on ourselves. And Mark Zandi, unfortunately, I couldn't dig this up. So if you go to BobMurphyShow.com slash 280, folks, I'll give links to this stuff. If you want to see the Romer Bernstein analysis and whatever, and then to see what happened afterward, somebody, I think it was an AEI, had a thing, I can probably dig that up to show what their projection was and to see how, again, let me make sure you got it. Romer and Bernstein said, we better pass this Obama stimulus package because if we don't, unemployment's going to get up to this big number. Whereas if we do pass it, unemployment, yeah, it's going to go up a little bit more, but we'll arrest the growth. So they went ahead and got what they wanted. And then actual unemployment went above what they warned would happen if they did nothing. And so now I'm saying the mirror image of that happened on the back end with the budget sequester, where Mark Zandi, who is a big Keynesian forecaster, widely touted in the press and whatnot, NPR will have him on to, you know, what do you think is going to happen? And so he gave a forecast arguing against the sequester. And he said, if we don't do the sequester, then I think it was with GDP growth. I don't know that it was with unemployment, but the economy will do such and such. If we have the sequester go through, then the economy will be worse. And again, I don't know if it was the short unemployment rate that was higher or if he showed GDP growth that was lower, but that was the way he presented the analysis looking ahead to the effects of the sequester that hadn't happened yet. And he was warning, don't do it because here's what our baseline trajectory is. The status quo will have an economy of this health, robustness, but the sequester, if we put that through, then the economy would be worse than what I, Mark Zandi, am projecting will happen if we don't do the sequester. So the Republicans, they went ahead and pushed through and they got the sequester. And guess what? The economy ended up better than Zandi said would happen if they did nothing. Okay, so it was the mirror image. So the way I phrased it at the time is the Keynesians were wrong coming and going. All right, so again, there's actually at least nine historical examples. I didn't go through them all. It's in the article here if you want to look at it. Of fiscal austerity, quote, working. There is not a single example of Keynesian pump priming deficit spending working. By the way, you might say, well, what do you mean? What about World War II? Isn't that the go-to one? No. Robert Barrow ran the numbers on that and he showed that, no, the multi, if you try to estimate multipliers, from the World War II example, they're terrible. And then Krugman came along and he said only a bonehead, and that was the word he used, only a bonehead would actually think World War II was supposed to be an example of the efficacy of government deficit spending and, they, you know, and the magic of the multiplier. Now, the reason Krugman said that was he said, look, it, there was a war going on, there was rationing in place. 
the private sector wasn't allowed to, you know, buy more radios and nylon stockings and stuff. So we weren't allowed to see the beneficial impacts of all this government deficit spending. You know, and again, it's okay. But my point remains, there is literally not one single example of the Keynesian remedy for a depressed economy ever working, ever. It has never worked. They always have excuses for, well, we didn't do enough. And there's lots of examples, at least nine, of austerity working. And for every one of them, Krugman goes through and explains, well, that doesn't really count. So at some point, and it's not like quantum physics or something where we're seeing the electrons in two places at the same time. We're saying politicians spending money isn't as productive as people in the private sector doing it who have some accountability with their own wealth at stake. So this isn't some nut job, crazy theory we have. What we're saying is common sense. It's the Keynesian theory that's crazy. And so it's actually not surprising that it doesn't hold up empirically either. Okay, with that, I'll wrap up. Thanks for your attention, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Hey folks, you're getting bonus content here. After I recorded the original discussion, I couldn't stop thinking about it. <laughs> and so I thought I had some more connections that I made just thinking through the inner logic of it. But also I thought it would be good to avoid any misunderstandings. So big picture, what kind of analysis was I doing through a lot of this last portion of the episode? I guess you'd call it comparative statics in a general equilibrium framework. So the idea would be, you know, I'm sort of doing it in words and using intuition, but if you were going to do it formally, and this departs from official Austrian economics territory, we're venturing out into the void of other types of schools of thought here. But the idea is like you would write out a bunch of conditions that would have to be true in equilibrium, right? Like, oh, households are maximizing their utility subject to their budget constraint. And if there is a central bank, what's its objective function? And well, you know, how does it respond? And so the idea would be you'd write out the first equilibrium and figure it out when the government's running, you know, spending five trillion, taking a three trillion in revenue and running a two trillion dollar budget deficit. And then you would have the same exogenous parameters and then figure out the endogenous values for all the market prices and everything else, given the new set of inputs, which would include the fact that the government now is running a balanced budget, it cut its spending to $3 trillion. And then you would figure out, okay, what does the equilibrium look like in this alternate universe? And then you would compare those two, and that's the way you would talk about what's the impact of the government's decision on these other variables. Now, strictly speaking, if you really wanted to be fancy about it, you'd be a little bit more careful and you would build in the dynamics directly into the model. All right, because there's times where you really do want to directly incorporate the passage of time. Or I, I should, that's kind of confusing. There are scenarios or there are questions under consideration where the passage of time and how these market values evolve over the trajectory is itself the thing you want to investigate. And so they're using a sort of comparative statics, timeless equilibrium in one snapshot, and then change some of the numbers and what's the new timeless equilibrium. That's the inappropriate. And so for example, one time David Friedman had an article and he was saying that he was trying to argue that people seem to think it's bad when home prices fall. And he was trying to show that no matter which way home price is good, that benefits people. Because if home prices come down, that, hey, whatever your original optimal bundle of housing was, now you can afford to buy some more. Your opportunity set has expanded. 
And if housing gets more expensive, then, hey, you can sell off, you know, you can move into a slightly smaller house and then buy more steak or whatever. And that your opportunity set, because you can always just keep your original bundle. That was the insight driving that. Right. So, and my point was, and that strikes a lot of people as wrong. Like most people, if they heard, hey, whether housing prices go way up or way down, you benefit because you could always just keep doing what you were doing originally. That some doesn't feel right about that because they could know like, no, if I have a house and the prices just went down 20%, that bothers me. Especially if I bought thinking prices were going to keep going up. Or if you were just about, you know, <laughs> you're scraping to get a down payment, you and your fiance and you're getting ready to buy a house and then prices go up 30% when you thought they were only going to go up 0.5%. In the time it took you to, you know, fully get everything all in order, you're not going to be happy about that, right? You, for one thing, you can't short houses. If you started out with zero and you were planning on buying one, you can't say, oh, now I'll hold negative two houses and buy a bunch of sushi instead. I'm glad my opportunity set has expanded. Thank you, David Friedman. Right? You're not that's so I'm saying a scenario like that where part of what people are doing, and I switched to gold coins. And I said, somebody buys a bunch of gold coins intending to give them to their grandkids when they pass, when, when the owners, not the grandkids pass, you're not going to be happy if all of a sudden there's a breakthrough in alchemy and the price of gold drops to the price of tin and say, oh, now, you know, before I was only going to give my grandkids three gold coins each, but now I can afford to give them 3000 gold coins each. There you go, Timmy. That's not how it works. Now it's just, I just wasted my investment. Okay. And so specifically what's going on there is, yeah, Friedman is right in standard consumer models that you teach in, you know, Econ 101 or something. Well, if you're using opportunity sets, maybe you would do it in a higher level class. Right. There is a sense when you start with your initial bundle and then if prices move, now you can get to a higher indifference curve and blah, blah, blah. But again, the problem is using that static analysis overlooks certain nuances that might happen in the real world if you what you're doing is buying bundles at one point intending to hold them for the future. And so that's why like you might be mad if your house price falls as if you were intending, if you're holding the house not merely as a, as a factory that generates a flow of shelter services, but also because it is a marketable asset and that you were either going to give to your kids and they could do something with it or just it was nice to know you had the option of selling that thing and then moving into a smaller place if you ever got into a cash crunch well now if home prices come down 30 percent unexpectedly that messes with your plans that screws up one of the reasons you bought the house in the first place at the price you paid for it okay so anyway but that's kind of what i'm doing in this analysis in this episode is these so-called comparative statics and then let me just mention two this the point that I wanted to clarify was I I kind of had a throwaway line near the end of the original recording where I was saying that you know oh how do I meet Krugman's objection that what happens if you know all the countries all the governments around the world try to do it well then you can all net export ha 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 and I mentioned how well yeah but still it's possible that the price levels could come down in all the different countries and that's so there's let me just elaborate a little bit more on that so one thing is price levels don't have to come down. And so again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to explain, you know, what is the mechanism by which the private sector fills the void left by the government slashing spending by $2 trillion. And so I was saying that, well, if domestic prices come down, then that could make consumers spend more than they did before. But that doesn't need to happen. 
that could just be one of the things that happens. Just the drop in interest rates, which I've already spent some time elaborating on, could do it, right? Because other things equal, the lower interest rates are, the more consumers, will, households will spend on consumption, the less they'll save. So that's one way that the gap would get filled. But those two things interact. Other things equal, the lower the interest rate, there's two things that go on. Yes, on the one hand, probably the lower fraction of income that the household saves because on the margin, the intertemporal trade-off has worsened now. If you're willing to defer consumption, you defer 100 units today. When interest rates are 10%, you get 110 units of real consumption next year. But if we're talking about real interest rates, whereas if interest rates go down to 2%, then you only give up 100 today to get 102 next year. Right? So other things equal, interest rates come down, consumers don't save as much on the margin, but also the composition of their assets changes. And so specifically, the lower the interest rate is, the more likely you are to hold actual cash or, you know, things that are near equivalents to it. Because if you're sitting on actual cash, either like literally in your wallet or, you know, in a safe at home or even a checking account balance that doesn't pay a high interest rate, then you're foregoing the income you could earn through interest if you were to invest in something less liquid, like a 12-month CD or something, or you know, buy stock in a corporation. Okay. And so the lower interest rates are, the more, the, like the higher percentage of your assets would consist of actual cash. Like in a hyperinflationary environment, well, I'm changing things because they're at the rising prices, but even so, in an environment where like interest rates are 20%, you're not going to want to hold a bunch of cash, relatively speaking, because the cash just sits there earning 0% in your cash balances, whereas if you went and bought a bond with it, so you want to economize and only keep the cash on hand that you were going to spend in an imminent future. You wouldn't just bulk up on a bunch of cash because, hey, the, you know, things are uncertain right now and I just feel better having a bunch of $100 bills in my safe at home or a bunch of more gold coins sitting in my safe at home or in a safe deposit box at the local bank. Okay, so that see how that interacts with our story here. And so let me just explain, it depends what the money is and it depends on how new money comes into the economy to, for me to be able to say whether prices would fall or not or how much would they fall. So for example, Again, we're doing this same thought experiment that I did at the tail end there. Like all the governments around the world are slashing spending and going from a huge budget deficit to a balanced budget. Some countries might see their price level fall. Other countries, and when I say price level, I'm using shorthand. I mean, an index of consumer prices. Other ones might not. And it depends again on in those countries with the respective currencies that their people use, like what's the system in place? So if it's, a standard thing like it is nowadays and there's a central bank that exists and they have a mandate and they want to keep in price inflation around 2%, let's say, well, there will be quote, deflationary pressures from what the government does originally. And then that would make consumer prices, the rate of their increase fall below 2%. And so the central bank, if it wants to maintain that CPI rises at 2%, would pump in more money. 
And that's partly how with the lower interest rates, all the households could satisfy their desire to acquire larger cash balances. So the central bank would literally provide more money for them. So if households want to bulk up and increase their cash balances by 5%, originally, immediately after the shock of the government slashing spending and interest rates plummeting, there's not enough money to go around to do that. And so prices start falling because households are cutting their spending. Then the central bank enters the mix and puts more money in the market. And then households, that's what they can accumulate. And so that's what keeps price inflation marching upward at the central bank's desired 2% rate. The only way to reconcile that with the other changes is if the central bank pumps in more money. And so Krugman can say, aha, see, the central bank accommodated the fiscal austerity through its expansionary. But I would say, no, it's not expansionary. The central bank is just doing what it needs to do to maintain its original expansionary monetary policy in this context, I think would mean, oh, there's a problem. And so the central bank lets the economy, quote, run hot for a while and lets price inflation go above the 2% target because, oh, gee, we kind of painted ourselves into a corner here and this is the only way we got to kind of print our way out of this mess. That's not what's happening here, right? They're putting more money in to maintain their original stance of the desired price inflation target. So I wouldn't say that would be the central bank loosening in this context, okay? But whether you call it loosening or not, that's what it is. And now the real slam dunk though, because you might say, oh, come on, Bob, you're quibbling. The real way to show Krugman is wrong for suggesting that the only way government fiscal austerity cannot lead to a recession is if you have a central bank that offsets it. We can do the same thought experiment in an economy with no central bank. And like if there's gold, well, then what happens, right? So let's say that, you know, they actually get gold and they stamp, you know, private mints, stamp it into coins that people use. And in this economy, people literally have prices quoted in grams of gold or grains of gold or ounces of gold. Like that's actually what the prices are. That's how people think. They earn, you know, when someone says, hey, how much are you making in your new job? They give them a weight of gold per hour or per year. Like that's how they think in this economy, right? And the government... The idea you say, oh, well, shouldn't the government be involved with money and banking? And to them, that's like saying, shouldn't the government tell your local priest what to preach on Sunday? Like, that's just like, oh, are you kidding me? Mixing money and state or mixing, there should be a wall of separation between money and banking in the state. Are you kidding me? Okay, so there's no question that there's a central bank here going to offset it. So in that kind of a world, but there's still a government, they cut spending $2 trillion, And so for this... Same reasons we said the households want to acquire more gold, whether it's in notes issued by banks, either paper form or electronic, because the banks have gold on deposit in their own vaults, or people want to just stockpile on the coins. What happens? That puts pressure, downward pressure on prices quoted in gold, right? It leads to a, you know, what people would probably refer to as a deflationary environment. And then, so now the purchasing power of gold has gone up. And so it makes it more profitable to go dig up more gold, right? Whatever the, in terms of the like physical transformations necessary, like how many labor hours do you need? How many hours of excavator services do you need to hire and all that kind of stuff to get a certain quantity of gold? As the price measured in gold of hiring those productive factors goes down, it now becomes more profitable to retrieve more gold, right? And so, especially because interest rates have gone down too, right? So the lag that it takes when you hire those factors to then get the gold 
at the end of the tunnel is now that trade-off is better because interest rates have fallen too. All right. So that's partly what happens there that you do see maybe in the beginning prices quoted in gold come down a little bit, but then that fall is arrested partly because more gold coins now or bullion, whatever flows into the economy. The rate of production of new gold goes up partly because of that shift, right? So that's what happened to those people. And then if you had people who were using Bitcoin and they had, let's suppose they had already hit the max, they'd already hit the 21 million limit. So those people never have any new money coming into their system. They can have layer two things that swap claims on Bitcoins or whatever, but I'm saying prices quoted in Bitcoin, you know, the amount of, well, actually, um, I guess it would matter if they, I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking out loud, folks. Let's suppose they don't do that or that it's just all 100% reserved, right? Like if you let someone take custody of your actual Bitcoins because it's easier for you to trade the claims on them, let's suppose it's all 100% reserved. So even in a world like that, what would happen is, okay, normally let's say their real GDP growth is 5%. So in that economy, just baseline, before the government changes anything, prices quoted in Bitcoins on average fall 5% a year. And so now what happens to them is if the government does its deal, cuts spending, interest rates fall, people want to shift their asset holdings to hold more Bitcoins than they did before. Well, they can't, that's impossible. And so what do they do? Well, actually they could because the Bitcoins aren't going to be held entirely by this one country. So technically, Bitcoins from ab abroad would flow in. So that's actually what would happen. But suppose all the people on planet Earth, all they're all just using Bitcoin as the money. That's the global money and nobody uses fractional reserve banking. So there's no question. There's only 21 million Bitcoins to go around on planet Earth. It can't be the case that all the households increase their holdings of Bitcoin. That's impossible. So what happens there is, yes, prices need to fall and they fall faster than 5%, right? So if real GDP still increases 5%, actually, I think real GDP would increase more because all the governments are cutting spending and resources flow into the private sector. But whatever real GDP growth is, instead of prices falling by that amount, instead they fall even a little bit more so that people's real Bitcoin holding cash balances increase the desired amount. Because when you want to hold more cash, it's technically not so much the physical number of units of money that you're holding, it's its purchasing power. That's really what you're wanting. And so if everybody tries to hold more money, if prices fall, they can all be satisfied because they can all hold more real purchasing power in their cash balances. So that's what would happen. But notice it would be a one-shot thing. That's the thing. The last thing I point I wanted to make, right? This would just be a one-shot thing when prices fall to adjust to the new situation. It's not that prices would continue to fall. And so if you like to use, and the reason I'm saying this is because I've actually said it before, it makes me uncomfortable when people talk about the sources of infl price inflation. You know, they say, why is inflation so bad? And they say, oh, yeah, all this government stimulus spending and blah, blah, blah. And Generally speaking, I don't like talking like that because when the government spends money, if it comes from taxation or borrowing, that's just taking money from somewhere else, right? And so you have to keep that into account. So now as this thought experiment is showing, it is possible there could be a one-shot adjustment. And there's nothing paradoxical about that, right? Even if the stock of money is the same, if all of a sudden people want to hold half as much, then prices double. That's the only way to make that happen. 
So it's not that it's impossible for prices to change, even if the stock of money hasn't changed. But in general, when people just casually talk about how, oh yeah, the government spending is causing all this price inflation, I get a little uncomfortable. And so I'm saying at best, a change in government policy like that could ex explain a one-shot transition. A it's like a level change. It's of what the price level would be. It's not that, oh yeah, because, the, so in this experiment, going the other way, when the government cuts spending, yeah, prices can drop, but it's not that prices are going to keep dropping forever if the government keeps balancing the budget. No, it's just a one-shot adjustment. Okay, that's enough clarification. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.